This all happened many years ago, long before the people came, when all the animals lived here. Once upon a time, Coyote was building a fish trap on the river, when he learned that a great monster was eating all the animals. So Coyote set out to see what he could do. Along the way, he took a bath, then dressed up to make himself look tasty to the monster. Climbing up the ridges, Coyote looked out over the land. Suddenly, he saw a great head nodding off in the distance, behind a huge body. Coyote had never seen anything like it before. The monster could not see Coyote because he was painted brown like the swaying grass. Using rawhide ropes, Coyote tied himself to three big mountains, Pilot Knob, Cottonwood Butte, and the Seven Devils. Then he called out to the monster, You are the one who swallowed all the animals. Why don't you swallow me too? so I won't be lonely. The monster did not know that Coyote carried with him a fire-making kit and five stone knives. The monster inhaled, making a mighty wind. He inhaled so hard that the ropes broke and Coyote was carried right inside the monster's gaping mouth. Coyote looked around as he walked down the wide throat of the monster. Seeing so many bones, he thought, many animals have been dying. Just then, the grizzly bear rushed at him roaring and growling, Coyote said. So you make yourself scary only to me? And he hit the bear hard on the nose. That is why Grizzly has a short nose. As Coyote continued along toward the heart of the monster, Rattlesnake rattled at him threateningly. So, only towards me you are vicious, said Coyote. Then he stepped on the snake's head, making it flat. It is still that way today. As Coyote walked further, the animals began to greet and follow him. When he finally reached the heart of the monster, he built a fire with his flints he had brought. He sawed some of the fat from the heart so the animals could eat. Smoke drifted up through the monster's eyes, ears, and nose. The monster didn't much like it. The animals ate the fat and watched. With his stone knives, Coyote began slicing the monster's heart. It was hard work. One by one, his knives began to break. But Coyote kept on cutting. He kept the fire going, too. When his last knife broke, Coyote grabbed the heart and tore it loose with his bare hands. At that moment, the great monster died, and all the animals ran out of all the openings of its bodies according to Coyote's directions. Muskrat was the last to come out. Everyone had stomped on him as his tail was caught. That is why, to this day, the muskrat has no hair on his tail. Everyone helped carve the fallen monster into large pieces. Coyote threw these pieces outward in every direction. Wherever they landed, nations of people sprang up. Coyote named them Cayuse, Blackfeet, Coeur d'Alene, Yakima. When he finished, Fox came up and said, What is the meaning of this, Coyote? You have used up the entire body of the monster and given it all away to faraway lands. There's nothing left for this place? Well, said Coyote, why didn't you tell me this before? Bring some water. Coyote washed his bloody hands and sprinkled the drops on the ground right here. From this watered ground came the people Coyote named the Nimipu, the Nez Perce. The heart of the great monster, now turned to stone, still lies here, marking the place of our beginning. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Tuesday, November 8th, Election Day, and in perfect sync, we'll take a hard look at that power structure for which we're all voting today. 
we'll consider our operating system, and we'll do so with one of our country's leading digital philosophers, Douglas Rushkoff. Rushkoff is a writer, documentarian, and lecturer whose work focuses on human autonomy in a digital age. He is the author of 15 best-selling books on media, technology, and society, including Program or Be Programmed, Present Shock, and Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. He has made such award-winning PBS frontline documentaries as Generation Like, Merchants of Cool, and The Persuaders, and is the author of graphic novels including Testament and Alistair and Adolf. Rushkoff is the recipient of the Marshall McLuhan Award for his book, Coercion, the Jacques Soule Award for his documentary, The Merchants of Cool, and the Neil Postman Award for a career achievement in public intellectual activity. Named one of the world's 10 most intellectual, influential intellectuals by MIT, he is responsible for originating such concepts as viral media, social currency, and digital natives. Today, Dr. Rushkoff serves as Professor of Media Theory and Digital Economics at CUNY Queens, where he recently founded the Laboratory for Digital Humanism and hosts its Team Human podcast. The program spent 42 minutes with him back in 2013 on the occasion of our second anniversary for episode number 104, where we spoke about present shock. Today, we will consider his most recent book, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, How Growth Became the Enemy of Prosperity, which argues that we have failed to build the distributed economy that digital networks are capable of fostering and instead doubled down on the industrial age mandate of growth above all. More information about his work can be found at his website, douglasrushkoff.com. It really is an honor to have him back again and a special treat to have him on Election Day. How are you doing today, Douglas? I'm doing fine. Uh, are people going to hear this on Election Day too, or are we just speaking from the past? Quite possibly. If, if I can turn it around today, I want to. But we'll see what I can do. Uh, well, so how have you been? I've been all right. I've been working hard. I uh, uh, I, I uh, became a uh, PhD since uh, we last spoke. I, uh, I wrote this dissertation about money for the, the University of Utrecht in Holland and went and defended it. And uh, so I became this PhD, and then after that, uh, got a uh, this job. Um, like you mentioned, at CUNY, Queens, City University of New York, uh, starting up a uh, master's program in, uh, what are we calling it, media and social justice. So there's sort of young uh, media activists coming from around the world to really figure out how to bring some rigor to their work. So, you know, things like, you know, really positive possibilities like Arab Spring or Occupy don't end up kind of petering out or leading to uh, such unexpected consequences so quickly, really looking at how to do this work maybe a little bit more, uh, I don't know, more thoughtfully or with some more uh, intention involved. And particularly now that we're fighting against such sort of old monolithic forces uh, you know, revitalized by digital technology. It's a real time for humans to you know, figure out how this works before, uh, before it works us. Well, I, you know, before we go any further, I need to say that I didn't um, – when I started reading your book, it's not what I thought it was going to be at all. I just for whatever reason had the idea that it was going to be – I don't know what I thought. But it it really uh, – it was a breath of fresh air, and I really enjoyed it. So thank you so much. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the title of the book's a little misleading, I guess. You know, it's called Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, and uh, – I didn't mean it to be 
like, oh, let's throw rocks at the Google bus. I meant it more, look at the situation we've gotten in, you know, where where this image is almost uh, uh, describes uh, kind of poetically or metaphorically the situation we're in, where, you know, he, the humans that all of this uh, digital technology or certainly that the digital economy, um, you know, were meant to, uh, 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 you know, be helped ended up doing the opposite. You know, so why, how have these good guy, bottom up, you know, people driven left coast progressive companies ended up making life for, you know, people and places uh, so much more difficult. But the book itself, you know, it looks at that, but really is, is looking at, so what do we do about it? You know, what, uh, how do we, uh, how do we optimize a digital economy for uh, distributed prosperity instead of the extraction of value. And uh, I think when people read it, they go, oh, it's actually not that hard. This is really pretty simple to do, either as small businesses, as investors, as big businesses, as government, as individuals. There are just so many ways to turn this thing around that uh, you know it shouldn't be quite as upsetting as, uh, or insurmountable as it sometimes seems. What, so the interesting thing, the you know, just the zeitgeist or the serendipity of this is that it feels like we're almost living in mythic times right now because of the Standing Rock um, water protectors, because they're actually on the front lines of against the industrial economy on some level. And then prophecy enters into this. And so there's all this swirling, uh, interesting, it, it's just such a momentous time yeah, I mean, that's, it's interesting. It's part of why I, I started my own podcast called Team Human, which is really looking at the uh, at looking at Team Human. You know, how do we fight for um, human values and human interests in a world that seems to fight for either uh, you know the agenda of money itself or the agendas of technology? So what happens is there's a kind of a an ass backwardness when we accept an economic model as kind of a, a given condition of nature, we end up trying to configure our whole society to serve that economic model, um, even if it's just killing everybody or, or, or ruining things or, or destroying our homelands. Um, and it's, it's because we've, uh, we've been convinced, and I would argue, as I do in my, I have a new graphic novel about this, largely, I, I think we've been convinced through branding and advertising and social control um, we've forgotten what terra firma is. We've forgotten what the real world is. So we end up in these situations where real people, you know, end up, you know, standing in the way of, uh, you know, bulldozers or business plans or corporate money or corrupted, you know, corrupt politicians. Uh, and these are the, the, the sad thing about it is, uh, these, these humans are really the few ones who remember, wait a minute, you know, couldn't we change the model instead of destroying the planet? Isn't there, uh, isn't there an easier way to do this? And that's really what happens at the end of any long institutional phase is the institution, be it banking or the stock market or uh, government, the institution ends up spending more energy uh, trying to preserve itself than doing whatever its original mandate was. Right. And if the economic virtue is to extract value then it doesn't matter if the pipeline bursts. It doesn't matter if, you know, it kills a lot of people because the whole idea is 
to extract this value. It, well, so let's get into that, actually. So this is the thing that's so wonderful about your book. And you mentioned that if if there's only one operating system on a computer, then no one knows what an operating system is because it's just computer. But with the idea of a currency, it too behaves a certain way. I mean, so in our realm, we have a number of people that look at institutions like the Fed, and there's this this idea of conspiracy that they've conspired to create all this wealth by just putting wealth into circulation. Could you talk a little bit about our our currency and and what it was designed to do and how it's successful? Yeah, I mean, without you know romanticizing uh, the late Middle Ages, there was this brief uh, century or two. In, in European history, you know, right after the Crusades, when all those soldiers came back from, you know, the Arab world and Africa and all the places that they were <laughs> trying to uh, uh, promote Christianity um, or, or, or the, the, our empire, the, uh, the soldiers came back with all these ideas and mechanisms and instruments and, and uh, uh, innovations from around the world. And uh, it really led to all of this trading of information and this uh, increases in the productive yield of crop and better windmills and you know all sorts of of new of new things happening. So there was this uh, period of bounty, and one of the innovations they brought was the bazaar or what in Europe they called the marketplace. And it's amazing they hadn't really thought of it, but Marketplace was just saying, let's take you know two days a week when everyone brings their stuff, all their bounty to this one public area, and we can all trade stuff. And they used market money, another innovation they got uh, from, from abroad, which was just uh, kind of like poker chips that were issued in the morning and would often expire by evening. But the poker chips really were, were all... Uh, optimized just to let people trade stuff, you know, so there could be uh, bread receipts or grain receipts or uh, uh, different, different, uh, very simple kinds of money based on uh, local commodities that let that kind of uh, primed the pump of the market in the morning to get the trade going. And people got wealthy. People didn't – they started to work less. They were working three or four days a week. The women got healthy. They, they, they were taller in medieval Europe than at any time until around the 1980s in England. So it was a, a time when people were eating and, and doing well. Uh, it wasn't perfect because it was still medieval Europe. But there was this tremendous uh, increase in wealth, a widespread increase in wealth. Former peasants were becoming the merchant class and the middle class. And the aristocracy hated this because the aristocracy were getting poor as the peasants got wealthy. The peasants were no longer dependent on the aristocracy uh, for, for everything. So the aristocracy figured, we've got to stop this. We've got to arrest this uh, economic development. We've got to squash this new peer-to-peer -peer economy and reestablish our dominance uh, over everything that's happening. So they invented central currency, which really just said that people are not allowed to transact with anything except uh, centrally issued coin that they borrowed from the central treasury at interest. So it was a way for people who had money, the aristocracy, to make money simply by 
lending money to everyone else who wanted to transact. If I wanted to buy shoes or bread from you, well, I, had, I had to borrow money from the central treasury and then pay it back at interest. The problem is if you're always paying back money at interest, then the economy has to grow. For every $100 that's lent out, 200 has to be paid back. So where does the other 100 come from? Well, it comes from the economy growing. And that worked fine for colonial powers who were growing by extending into Africa and South America and North America, enslaving people, taking their stuff, and, and expanding. And finally, by around World War II, we just couldn't expand anymore. We used up the planet. And so we had to look now for more virtual or synthetic uh, surface area on which to grow. So the internet provides some of that by creating all of these uh, little virtual spaces, and currency provides it by folding onto itself with derivatives and algorithms and stocks and all sorts of abstracted uh, mechanisms. But the the obligation of the economy is to keep growing in order to pay back to banks the money that was borrowed from them. And as long as you have to do that, you've got to find new growth. And we end up as, as economic actors, really, serving the growth mandate rather than serving our actual economic needs. And that's where we sort of run up against this wall. Hmm. Yeah. And, and to further illustrate that, when you read uh, the chapter about how the move from taking the retirement accounts of individual people, which were kind of handled as a group item, to an individual item, you realize how that's another way the people with money are kind of gaming the system in that every time anyone does anything, they generate more. They're able to extract value. I guess that's the thing that comes out of this. Right. It's really financial innovation means finding new ways to take money from people without actually doing anything new. So you have to look at it that there's this that there's two kinds of ways of making money. One is by creating and exchanging value. You know, growing a piece of fruit and selling it to someone else, you know, making a shoe and selling that to someone. That's the regular economy. Then there's people who look at the trading that's going on between people and think, how can I make money off of that? without actually doing anything. That's called financialization. So we end up now in an economy where companies that actually create value don't do as well as those who simply lend money or suck money out. You know, this is what Jack Welch, the founder of General or the founder, the CEO of General Electric in the 80s and 90s discovered was that the company made less money making and selling a washing machine than they did lending money to someone to buy that washing machine. So that's when Jack Welch said, let's sell the appliance making business and become a financial lending company. I, and that's and that's really what GE did. And they're only trying to reverse it now after the crash of 2007 when they realized, oh, you know, financialization isn't really any more stable than anything else. But the entire internet digital startup scene is all about that. So if you're a young founder and you come up with some idea of how to help people with an app and how to make money that sort of old-fashioned way where people will pay to do the thing that you're offering, uh, 
what you do is you go to the, the venture capitalists, you go to one of the one of the the VCs, and you get money from them, and then they tell you to pivot. And what pivoting means is you steer yourself away from whatever that value generating proposition was and work instead to figure out a way to sell your company. You either sell it by having an IPO, which is selling the stock to the public, or you sell it by getting acquired by Facebook or Google or someone else. So once you're selling your company instead of selling your service, your whole approach changes. Now it's really about dominating a marketplace in the short term in order to show that you have a monopoly. So Uber will look at driving and say, we don't really care if these drivers can make a living or if we have a sustainable business here. All we care about is demonstrating that we have a monopoly over ride sharing. Or Amazon will look at books, not because they want to help publishers make more money and be able to distribute better. They simply want to own publishing so they can leverage that monopoly into another. You know, the product of any of these companies is the stock, not the thing they're selling. You know, and once the stock uh, outweighs the needs of the, the, the workers and the employees and the customers, uh, then you get out of balance. And that's how you get in a situation where a company like Twitter makes an app. It's, it has a, it's a 140 character messaging app. That's all this is. And they make $2 billion a year on that. But investors hate Twitter because they don't know how Twitter's going to return a hundred times on their investment. See, they don't care about making money. They don't care about the two billion dollars of revenue. They want to sell their stock for a hundred times what they bought it. And unless the company continues to grow, they can't do that. And when growth is the only means of uh, delivering satisfaction to your investors, you end up killing your company. You end up uh, really developing digital technology around the needs of capital rather than around the needs of people. That's why we're so overwhelmed. That's why we live in an attention economy or a surveillance economy. That's why whenever you touch one of these devices, it gets smarter about you and sells your data to someone else while you're getting dumber and dumber about it and really more and more um, disconnected from the kinds of things that used to uh, actually connect you to people and places. Well, so is, you mentioned that in in the uh, book where the goal of VC capital is either to hit a home run or to have the business fail. Do they somehow get um, – they can write off the failure somehow? Is that how to justify that, the difference between – so you're, you're saying they – they're not happy with a two billion profit, uh, you know, two billion dollar profit. They need like a hundred billion dollar profit so that they can get their investment back in a in a home run time situation. Well, their model is they're go Let's say they're going to invest in a hundred companies a year. They believe that ninety nine or ninety eight of them are going to fail. And the two that succeed have to make up for all of those. So it's the same way the record industry used to anyway. They would release a whole bunch of records, and most of them would lose money, but the few hits, you know, the Stevie Wonder or the Beatles or the Rolling Stones that would have a hit would compensate for everything else. And that's really the way that, uh, that venture capital looks at it, that they're going to invest in all these companies and they want a home run. And it's not that they want a business to die, but if if your business is struggling and struggling and you say, look, 
I can keep this business alive by doing this. We can just keep going, you know, and we can make 10% more every year, you know, that we've put in. We can have a profit. We can be a good, sustainable business. The venture capitalist doesn't want that. The only reason that business exists, as far as he's concerned, is to potentially deliver a hundred times or a thousand times the initial investment. So he would rather that business take whatever risks it needs to and die for the even the remote possibility. So let's say this company makes a little bit of money now, like Twitter say, they make just $2 billion a year, you know, but that's not enough because the investor put in money when the company was already making $1 billion a year. So his investment's really only worth about twice mm-hmm. what it was what, that he put it in. He would rather Twitter leverage and experiment, say, well, maybe try being a video company or try being a data company or try being an advertising company. You've got another four or five years of runway left keep trying things to try to make a hundred times what I, what, what you were worth before. Otherwise you're useless to me. I don't want double my money. That's pointless. Mm -hmm. And so then the purpose of all these different corporations are not to, to bring the product to the consumers, but to bring the returns to the investors. Right. Otherwise, you know, the, the problem is that traditional companies end up uh their their stock ends up being worth much less than these fast growing digital companies so that's how you know back when a time warner which was a real company with theme parks and movie studios and music property and television stations could be bought by aol which was really nothing. You know, AOL had the inflated poker chips of a dot-com company, um, with, uh, and its revenues had peaked. It was actually, uh, and they didn't have real stuff. They had a few dial-up servers around the country, but there weren't a real company as such. You know, or uh, an Uber, which is really just an app and doesn't own any cars, or Airbnb, which is a platform. It doesn't own any hotels or any stuff. These companies end up with, you know, with tremendous market caps. That is, their stock is worth a whole lot. And what that lets them do is, if they want, especially as they they sense their their rocket's going to crash, that's when they use their shares to go buy real companies. So it ends up not just being a digital economy that's so distorted, but it ends up distorting the relative value of companies that actually um, create value. It's really hard for a company that just makes money and and is profitable and has been around a long time. It's very hard, especially if they're on public markets. It's very hard for them to defend themselves in an environment where there's this other thing going on. So again, what we're really looking at is the conflict between a real economy and the financialization of that real economy. The people who are financialing the economy have uh, all different sorts of leverage. They have derivatives, they have algorithms, they can fold value into value. So they can go into this market with very synthetic instruments. They can go in with something that looks like it's worth a billion dollars and buy real stuff. It's the same reason that, you know, in in New York, no one, no one like me anyway, can afford to live in New York anymore, in the city, because the the apartments that are there they're not 
they're not being rented or bought by real people. They're being rented and bought by investment companies. You know, it's, it's, you know, Goldman Sachs or, you know, the Bank of China that will own half of a building and the apartments will be vacant. But, but how am I going to compete against these uh, financial companies that are using living spaces really as, as an asset class rather than as a place to live? Yeah, about the same time that I started reading your book, uh, Adam Curtis's new video called Hypernormalization came out where he kind of addresses that divide between like reality with stuff and then this hypernormal reality where it's just abstract that's kind of feeding or creating the feeding frenzy, I guess. But so the promise of the digital economy is the idea of a long tail, and that that didn't happen. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, well, I mean, there have been basically whoever is running Wired magazine at the time usually becomes the defender of this sort of digital financialization over anything real. So you look at the very beginning of Wired magazine, you know, there was uh, the the earlier digital culture magazines were like Mondo 2000 and Reality Hackers. These were magazines that argued that the coming digital uh, digital culture is going to be a peer-to-peer culture that celebrates weirdness and humanity and allow us to evolve in all of these new ways. And then Wired Magazine came along and said, no, no, um, it's not about that. This is going to save business, that uh, the digital... Uh, the digital media environment will give a new landscape for growth. And we're going to be in this thing called the long boom, where the economy will literally grow forever with no more crashes. And of course they were wrong. There was the dot-com boom and bust. There was the crash of 2007. But what they were arguing was that, that these companies can become the salvation of the NASDAQ stock exchange and the salvation of business. And every time bad things would happen, you know, they would come out, one of them, an editor of that, would come out with another book arguing, oh, well, don't worry about that because this is what's really happening. And um, that's what um, Chris Anderson, one of the editors of Wired, came out with two books, one called The Long Tail and the other called Free. You know, and in both of them, he was arguing, don't worry, this isn't what it looks like, uh, even though uh, uh, everybody um, it looks like everybody's poor online. What's happening is we're all putting our stuff and our music and our things. And even though it might not sell at first, it's always going to be up there and people may discover it. And then, uh, you'll, uh, uh, you'll eventually make money on it. And it turns out that's not really true that what's happened with all of this increased access online, surprisingly, fewer people actually make money on cult, with cultural product. It hasn't spread more evenly. There isn't this long tail of, of people who make medium to a little bit of, of money on, uh, with their music. It turns out that in the old system, where people just went to the record store and bought records, there was a wider distribution of purchases than online, where people buy just the few things of the biggest stars. There's all of these self-reinforcing feedback loops between top 10 lists and leaderboards and recommendation engines and the way algorithms try to, to feed stuff 
to us and the way there are these feedback loops of pop stars from, you know, whether it's, you know, Taylor Swift or Kanye. Um, so in the digital media environment, fewer, there, fewer people make more money and the many people make less money. It's what we call a winner-takes-all environment. And that's with everything, with books, with music, with uh, uh, electronics. You know, there's a couple of winners and many, many more losers um, than there were before. And that's not, uh, that's not a long tail. That's the opposite. So then uh, the, the Chris Anderson, he comes out with a book called Free, saying, look, it's okay to sell your music and your books and your writing and your stuff absolutely for free because, well, you'll make it some other way. So he said, you know, oh, you know, authors should give away their books so they can make those $10,000 speaking fees. <laughs> Most people who are giving away their books can't get those $10,000 speaking fees. And the only ones who are willing to pay $10,000 speaking fees are big corporations. You're not going to get $10,000 for teaching communities how to fight back against the financial financialization of their economy. You're not going to get it uh, telling people how to uh, form human chains to prevent bulldozers from uh, you know, building gas lines through their ancient burial grounds, you're going to get it for going to the gas company and telling them, you know, <laughs> how to stop people from protesting against what you're doing. So e even this notion of things being free and then you make the money on some other thing, um, only if your cultural product ends up uh, one way or another kind of supporting um uh, supporting this extractive model, not promoting a more circulatory, uh, human-centered vision of uh, economics or technology. Okay, and so by this point, maybe listeners are wondering how <laughs> this book sounds so dark. How did you find any any hope out of it, Doug? Well, the thing is, you end with this this idea of Renaissance, which is literally rebirth, and that there is. There is a way out of this, and that's what I've really been searching for, and that's why the book came to me at just the right moment because, you know, I've heard lots of voices about, well, how, where do we go from here? How can we, how can we re hit the reset button and have an, a, like a, an abundance economy instead of something that's built on scarcity? Oh, well, it's really easy. I mean, that's why, and even at the end of every chapter, I take a bunch of pages to give five concrete steps that people, institutions, government can take to change everything, you know, and whether it's, you know, individuals in their towns, you know, mayors in their local communities, CEOs, uh, marketers, uh, uh, independent farmers. I mean, there's really uh, very uh, simple, straightforward solutions to making the economy more real um, and less abstracted. And it really starts with a willingness um a willingness to make money in that old-fashioned way, you know, a willingness to trade and create value and to begin to see yourself as someone who can create value. I mean, part of the problem is that so many people are working in cubicles, doing things that they know aren't actually real. You know, they know they're in some really bizarre, you know, corner of an extractive value scheme, you know, whether it's, you know, cheating kids out of their student loans or, uh, doing, you know, mortgage extraction, you know, these awful things that most people have to do. And they think, you know, especially when they have these sort of zombie apocalypse fantasies, they think, what am I actually doing? What, 
what could I do were these banks and ridiculous systems to go away? Do I know how to do something? Could I teach something? Could I make something? Can I do first aid? Can I cook? Can I grow? You know, people start wondering that way. So that's, you know, part of the problem is most people feel so disconnected from, from value that, that they're afraid to move into a world with a, with a, with a simpler, uh, less convoluted economic uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, schema. Um, but you know the, the the answers are very simple. I mean, first, it's a matter if you've got any connection to any kind of business at all, um, then I would look at how can your business or company, uh, how can it make other people rich? You know, the 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 wealthier you make your marketplace, the more money your company can make. So right now, companies are configured to try to bankrupt their marketplaces. They think let's just take all the money out of this town. The problem with taking all the money out of the town is then you don't have any more customers. So Walmart is running into this big problem where by bankrupting the communities where they operate, they end up having to eventually shut down that Walmart and move somewhere else. So these companies got very good at extracting money from marketplaces and storing that money, but really bad at deploying it, really bad at continuing to make money in a circulatory way. So one thing is just look at how do you make other people rich? So if you're at Google, at Facebook, at Twitter, start thinking about how can your users participate in the value? You know, so if you're at YouTube, how much can you give people for uploading the video rather than just extract from them with your advertising? Are they participating in value and are they making enough money on those videos to actually be able to make videos or is it just such a token small fee that it doesn't matter? Um, if you're, uh, uh, gosh, I mean there's so many different things people can do. Uh, local currencies and favor banks are actually ready for prime time. I'm not talking about you know, giant uh, anonymous blockchain currencies like Bitcoin, but simple favor banks. If you're in a town and people have skills and other people have needs, then you have the basis for an economy. Just because you don't have a bank willing to give you U.S. currency doesn't mean you can't begin to keep track of what people are doing for one another through something like a let's system or time dollars. You know, these, these systems are easy and there's websites you can go to and just implement something in your town and you watch, uh, watch how quickly it grows. Um, if you're at banks, you could begin looking at instead of just uh, lending money, lending the capital people need to expand their businesses, you could think about lending half the loan as capital and then facilitating crowdfunding for that business from the community. So the bank ends up with a, a guarantee in the form of community buy-in and the person with the business doesn't have to pay back so much in cash to a bank. They can end up paying in merchandise and discounts to the people who've invested in the company. Um, Companies can look at giving uh, shares to their employees. You know, their one company that followed the prescription in this in this book was uh, um, Chobani Yogurt. You know, one of the things I was arguing was was that before you have your IPO, give ten percent of your shares to your employees. Let them be genuine participants. And they went ahead and they did that. You know, right before the IPO was announced, the CEO said, "We're going to give ten percent of our shares." to the employees based on, on how long they've been here and how much work they've done. It's, uh, uh, it's a step towards what we could call platform cooperativism, where the people that are working on the platform own the platform. What would Uber look like if the drivers owned the platform? You know, that's 
you know, that's what we're uh, uh, that's what we're aiming toward is 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 a an ownership society, and this really does harken back to the Middle Ages to bringing forward to retrieving the mechanisms that were squashed. You know, the last time we had a renaissance of this magnitude. You know, and I would argue, yes, we're in a renaissance. The the computer and the internet's are equivalent of the printing press. Instead of circumnavigating the globe, we saw the the world from space. You know, in, instead of getting uh, perspective and highly dimensionalized paintings, we're getting fractals, which are uh, even at a greater uh, level of of dimensionality. You know, there's many many parallels to that time and our own. But the beauty of a renaissance is that you get to retrieve things. Renaissance literally means rebirth, renaissance. You know, so we rebirth the mechanisms that we repressed the last time. And that's peer-to-peer economics, local currencies, um, and even the kinds of things, the, the uh, mythologies and storytelling and uh, the real humanism of the pre-industrial age ends up surfacing again. And we see it, whether it's in uh, uh, magic and psychedelics or Burning Man or Etsy or craft beers and steampunk. You know, we start to see these things retrieved culturally. And once they're retrieved culturally, we know that business economics and politics are next to come. That's one of the things you mentioned that there used to be this equation of land, labor, and capital, and now capital is our highest value. So what do we call the operating system, and then what do you call the, the, the way out that you're, that you're espousing in your book? Well, the popes called it distributism, which was an interesting model. You know, back when uh, Marx was writing, uh, was writing his stuff, the, uh, the popes were asked, well, who do you agree with, the capitalists or the communists? You know, which side are you on? And the popes, you know, very uh, uh, politically, I suppose, but astutely, they said in these uh, these letters called the encyclicals, they said, well, you know, we like both. We like the idea that individuals are free to earn and keep the the you know the profits that they've earned, but we also you know like workers and don't think that they should be exploited just because they don't own stuff. So they came up with an economic model they called distributism, which was saying, look. Instead of redistributing the spoils of capitalism after the fact, you know, through heavy taxation or some redistribution scheme, why don't we pre-distribute the means of production before the fact? So what they were arguing was that the means of production, the tools, the factories, the, the ways that people make money should be owned as widely as possible, whether that's the commons with land that, that you own um, – that we all, you know, together, you know, own the land on which we grow and the the airwaves in which we try to, uh, you know, play our radio shows or the internet on which we do our podcasts or the factories, you know, in which we work. So, you know, what they were really talking about was what we would now call a platform cooperative that the workers co-own the platforms, the companies, the mechanisms through which they make money. And once you do that, it's no longer, you know, some venture capitalist having the only seat at the table. You know, what the popes recognized was what Adam Smith talked about, an economist even before him, is that there are three factors of production. There's land, 
you know, which is where you actually get your, your minerals or you grow your food. There's labor, which is the workers, and there's capital, which is the money that you've used to, you know, build the factory or buy the tractor or do whatever it is. And all three of those are required for a successful business. Right now, we're living in an economy where only the capitalist, where only capital is respected. They're the only ones who get a seat at the table. They are the shareholders who have the meeting. That's capital. Well, when capital is the only one with a seat at the table, what happens is the needs and priorities of land and labor end up being externalized. They end up being ignored. So what happens to land? We get climate crisis. We're destroying the planet. What happens to labor? We get the mass division of, of, of income and a disenfranchised labor force. So if we can invite land and labor back to the table, if we can realize that our planet and our people are actually stakeholders in our businesses, not just the people who've put in the cash, then we can begin to develop an economy that serves humans rather than just serving um, a, a number on a spreadsheet. You know, when we're all dead, it won't matter that this spreadsheet says that there was profit. <laughs> that was 42 minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Uh, thank you. You've been listening to Douglas Rushkoff in 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. For more information about his books and work, check out his website, douglasrushkoff.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guest to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio, and video, as well as seasonal online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much. And these two young fish were swimming along. And they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit. And eventually one of them looks at the other and says, What the hell is water? No matter how hard you try, you can't stop us now. No matter how hard you try, you can't stop us now. Kept going through changes And then the renaissance came, came. And time
Shut